If you look at a lot of diets, 80% of people who lose weight regain it. Why is that? Because a lot of the majority of people who lose weight did something out of the ordinary to lose it in the first place. Well, unfortunately, Lat, a lot of what comes out in the supplement world these days is complete nonsense. It's just marketing. And so, you know, I was so curious about ketones because there isn't naturally a state of where you have ketones and glucose simultaneously. So when we talk about endogenous ketones, you know, you're doing, you're on the forefront of the research. What is the secret to losing fat and building muscle? The first and foremost is understanding your calories. What are the most common mistakes people make when trying to lose weight? I think the first and foremost mistake is thinking not, people have an idea of either nutrient selection or uh, if it fits your macros. 80% of your food needs to be single ingredient foods. It needs to be foods that are like steak, chicken, salmon, eggs, berries. All eight billion of us are doing metabolism at all times. This show is about learning what metabolism is, how it affects you in every way possible, from mood and mental state to performance and energy. We are all about fine-tuning the human experience for you to achieve the best self you can be. And if you are someone who loves science, curious to know how your body works and how to optimize it, then you are in the right place. This is the HVMN Podcast. In this episode, we have Jacob Zima, who is a performance coach in the Westchester, New York area. He has spent more than 20 years refining his approach to fitness, holds over a dozen certifications in both exercise and nutrition, and has been regularly featured in the media to share his unique methodology. His success comes from the ability to be hyper-direct and focused on keeping clients accountable. Jacob helps his clients channel what makes them successful individuals and teaches them how to apply it. In this episode, we covered everything ranges from nutrition to workouts and the differences between peptides, anabolic steroids, and TRT. So please stay tuned and enjoy this episode. And we have Jacob Zima here today with us. Thank you very much for coming on to Health of Iron Modern Nutrition Podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Jacob and I, we met, uh, what, two weeks, three weeks ago at Brian Mazza's event in yeah. Austin. HPLT. HPLT, yep, exactly. And um, Jacob was there and um, Jacob was asking me about ketone metabolism and uh, he wasn't sure, you know, what is what. And after my session, I had a I, I was on a panel and we talked about ketone metabolism, how different exogenous ketones act differently and how it affects people for both uh, performance as well as, as well as therapeutic areas. And then now here we are. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, Lat, a lot of what comes out in the supplement world these days is complete nonsense. It's just marketing. And so, you know, I was so curious about ketones because there isn't naturally a state of where you have ketones and glucose simultaneously. So when you talk about endogenous ketones, you know, you're doing you're on the forefront of the research, which is amazing. And that's when I heard you speak, I was like, OK, here's someone who's not just a marketer or a business owner, which there's nothing wrong with that but you are clearly a researcher. And so you would clearly give me educated responses to my question. So I really, really appreciated meeting you. No, thank you. Same here. Pleasure to meet you. And I know you've done so much around content as well, right? Really educating people around fitness and health. So without further ado, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your backstory sure. uh, so that our audience get to know you a little bit better? Sure. So my name is Jacob Zemer and I was born in a town called Portville, New York population is 959 people. 
Uh, my father was an alcoholic. Uh, he was 23 years old when he got my mother, who was 15, pregnant. And so I don't think anybody would have looked at me and said, okay, well, this guy's going to be an influencer or this guy's going to be, you know, very successful with a, a executive level, like level of clientele. I don't think there was much hope for me at all, uh, except my mom was really determined that my life was going to be radically different than hers. And so I, as a kid, didn't have much team, uh, just even in the product of the environment I grew up in. And when I was about 14 years old, I made the decision that I wanted to go to the gym. And I went to a local YMCA. Remember, we're talking small town here in America. Um, and a different time period, a different world. This is 1990s, maybe early 2000s, somewhere in there. And so I went to the local YMCA and I saw all these gentlemen there and I instantly connected. I was like, okay, that's that for me, for whatever reason, I saw myself looking a certain way. There was a gentleman there in particular who had a Dodge Viper. And I said, I want to grow up and I want to be muscular. I want to be successful. I want to have a cool car. Very superficial things, but, you know, it's a 14-year-old kid's dream and also his interpretation of a kid who's from small town America. So I saw, I went in, I was totally intimidated. I was confused about what to do. I mean, I'm new to the gym. And like most people, when they go to the gym, they're kind of like, what do I do here? And I saw a classmate of mine who was two years older than I am named Chris Tom. And I went up to Chris Tom and I said, Chris, will you teach me how to weight train? And he's like, hey, like, I like Jake, but, you know, I'm busy. And I said, well, what can I do? He said, you pick up both my weights and your weights. You rack and unrack the plates, put the dumbbells back, and I'll show you how to weight train this summer. And he did. And through asking someone for help, I changed the entire trajectory of my life. And uh, as a result of that, I got very into training. I went on, um, I actually started college at about 16. My mom was just very adamant my path would be different. So I started taking uh, community college classes. My first college class was public speaking, ironically, which served me well later in life. And uh, I then proceeded to go to college at 18, went on. I was determined that I was not going to be poor. They asked me the worst thing in life that you could be. It would be poor, just having grown up in the way I did. Um, you know, I had to ride my bike for my first car. I worked at McDonald's. Uh, I worked in the uh, over the summer at a country club with my bike every day to go to work. And I saved up for a Caprice Classic from auction. And so I was determined I wouldn't be poor. So I went to finance. And I got an undergrad in nutrition economics. I got an MBA in finance. Uh, it was not for me, Lat. Uh, I did not enjoy it. I did not find. I was in derivatives. Um, and I eventually left and everybody thought I was crazy. And basically, I was struggling with my career path. I went to an Equinox, became a trainer. I had education, obviously, and personal experience. But there, I received about 12 certifications. But more importantly, what I received was a deeper understanding of my demographic. And I understood the plight of working executives and understanding, like, I began helping them with the other 23 hours of their day. Because, you know, you work out for an hour, there's still 23 hours left. And you know, the battle's really fought with nutrition. It's really fought with getting proper sleep. It's really fought with making sure that you're doing preventative health and getting your labs done. And so through the course of this, I grew a coaching business. Uh, I took off in Westchester. I won best trainer in Westchester, according to Westchester Magazine, which is kind of like, you know, the small business magazine here. And as a result of that, I gained a very big following of personal training, but like a quiet following. It's Westchester. It's a, if you know Westchester, you understand what it is. It's a suburb outside of the city that's very socioeconomically high, but you know, you might never have heard of Westchester. It's not like a Chicago or an LA, et cetera. Um, but what ended up happening is then I got on social media reluctantly. 
It took me quite a bit of time to do it. Everybody was pushing me to do it. I didn't want to do it. I thought it was all fake. I thought social media was nonsense. I did it. And in about two years, I hit about 230 something thousand followers. Uh, it took me quite a while to get to 10. And then as soon as I hit 10, I blew up to 30. And then I blew up again to like 160. And over the past other year, I've accumulated about another 70. And we're on YouTube. We're in the top 5% of YouTubes. And now I have a coaching business. And I coach people, primarily executives, to get in the best shape of their life. So I help them with their nutrition. Help them, again, with their training. I have an app with custom training programs on it, et cetera. They get conversation Monday through Saturday, checking in daily. And it's really centered around accountability and are really like actionable. So real life people, like people who are going out to dinner, people who are traveling, people who have careers, people who aren't fitness first, but they're usually either their family or their career are their priorities been followed by being in the best shape of their life. So I assume it's both in person and also remotely, uh, sort of virtual as well then. The business is as a whole, the majority of my client is virtual. The majority right. are going on my website, they're signing up, they're signing up for coaching. We have an onboarding call, they fill out a ton of questionnaires, and then I talk with them and work with them. And then it's mostly text day to day in which I'm keeping them accountable and then we check in periodically. And then I still have my semi-private and there'd be an argument to say, I wouldn't even still do that, but I still love that. I don't do one-on-ones anymore, but I do small groups up to four who are very similar people. Uh, for example, like in my nine o'clock group is four business owners. By six o'clock today, there was two FAs in there and a family manager and another gentleman in finance. So very similar like-minded people. But I find that, to be honest with you, when I was at Equinox, people would call me a personal trainer and I loathed that term because it's not really personal what I'm doing. I don't need to know the name of your kids. My job as a professional trainer, I'm trying to get you in the best shape of your life and I'm showing you that I care by getting you in shape. So when it comes to that, when you have a four person group, it keeps things moving in the pace. There's not time for chat when I'm giving people four exercise Metcons, when I'm saying, all right, we're gonna ski or we're gonna dumbbell RDL, we're gonna do a payoff press, and then you're gonna do a TRX pike, and they've got three guys who are behind them in that circuit, and everybody's moving simultaneously. People get extreme strength and conditioning. You know, I saw one of your content on your Instagram, RDL, um, Romanian deadlifts versus stiff leg. Yeah. I've always had that question and I love that video of yours because I'm like, that makes so much sense now. Um, uh, so thank you for that. I think a lot of us, even for people who have been working out for years, you know, there are little nuance that they never knew the answer for. And when you Google, there are so many things out there that may or may not be right. And they have different definitions according to people. So I think it's really nice that you you put out information like that uh, for free for people to to take a look and learn. So, and you mentioned something really interesting um, throughout your journey. When you were 14, when you went to the gym, you were intimidated. You didn't know what to do. Yeah. I think a lot of people can relate to that, right? And myself included, uh, I started gymming very late when I was properly going to gym, when I was... 22 when i was in university oh. i was overweight that un until then yeah. um and i was completely lost i i looked at the machine for like two minutes and trying to find a manual you know um figuring out how it works so what advice would you give to people who just want to start gymming who's just you know stepping into the gym for the first time getting intimidated getting confused what would your best advice be my first and foremost advice would be that you need to do something rather than nothing. So try to find something that you enjoy. 
right? I, I could get into what's optimal American Heart Rate Association's recommendations on cardiovascular activity. I could talk to you about what you should be doing for bone health and immune system in terms of weight training. Sure. And I could even talk to you in depth about like how you mix both of those together. But the reality is first and foremost, find something that you enjoy. And the easiest way to do that is to usually go with a friend. Um, now that usually leads people down the road of group fitness or something like that. And I will tell you that group fitness isn't optimal. However, a, a suboptimal plan done consistently is better than an optimal plan. So something is definitely better than nothing. So start somewhere where you feel comfortable and go from there. The second answer that I can give you is the truth is, is that I am not a particularly clean person. My housekeeper left about an hour ago and because I'm not clean, the housekeeper comes to my house twice a week so that my wife doesn't murder me. And if you do not have a skill set or you don't want to take the time to acquire the skill set, then you hire it out. You leverage yourself. So hire someone. Shorten the learning curve. And I know that sounds simple. It can be a little tricky because a lot of personal trainers are like waiters. Uh, and by that, I mean they're, they're trying to figure out their life or they're trying to figure – but there are ones that are serious out there. And thankfully with Instagram today too, if you just look at geotags in your area, you'll probably find a trainer who's putting out content – It'll be a little bit more on the pricey side, but I always say uh, being cheap can be expensive. You don't want to spend $30 less an hour and get nothing where you could spend the extra 30 or whatever you're spending an hour and get something. So I would recommend looking around, getting a referral. If you have somebody you really respect who is in shape, going to them and asking them for like, who do you recommend who's good at this? But I would definitely say first and foremost, do something, jump in where you're comfortable. If you can get a friend, amazing. If you can't, then hire someone and shorten the learning curve. Yeah, thank you for those advice. I think that's very good advice as well when you go with a friend to a, a fitness class, especially if it's a circuit fitness class, you can essentially learn the techniques as well because they will have an instructor yeah. there and there are other people doing it and you'll be like, you won't be as lost. And, and, and group fitness, even though I said, hey, group fitness, but it's not optimal. Let me explain this first and foremost. It's because if you're really getting down to the nuts and bolts and you're getting very particular at it, you want a plan. You want something structured for each day. But when you're beginning, you're, you're only going to the gym a few hours a week. It doesn't matter. And then secondly, group fitness is elevated so much. Like, you know, Orange Theory is, you know, whatever you think about. Berries. Yeah, FN45. I mean, they're much better than they used to be. And they've kind of, and there are classes like, FN45 or these things, which I have no affiliation with, but these things are more structured. So it has increasingly grown and grown. Um, even what I do with semi-private training, like it's very structured what we're working on with clients. And what I also found is CrossFit communities as well. They are very helpful. They're always welcoming like new people and they guide them through as well. So that's another, another area that people can I try. think community when, so as me as a human being, I will tell you honestly, I have always been like a very um, quantitative scientist, which is why I immediately connected with you. I like data. Um, I, I don't need feel good. Uh, but having done this for so long and worked with so many coaching clients, I always tell them after they answer all the, the questionnaires I need, I tell them if you're a robot, I could program you now and you get the results you always wanted but you're a human being. And so that's why I get on the onboarding call still with people and talk to them. I need to hear about their, I need to hear about their home life. I need to know, do they have a partner? Do they have a spouse? Do they have kids? Do they have a dog? Uh, what's their career? What do they, do they travel? Because it, the magic of nutrition is fitting it into their life. And in the same way, when it comes to fitness and, and losing weight or getting in shape, it's, it requires a relationship. 
because it's hard. Only 3% of people succeed at diets. You look, how often do you see somebody and be like, wow, that guy's really jacked? It's, it's, it's not common, which means people aren't continuously going to the gym. Only 2% of people have abs. So because of that, it's so challenging. You need a relationship to help pull you through, which is why I said find a friend. And if you can't, uh, essentially hire someone who will be your mentor because relationship is so paramount in achieving your fitness goals. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Um, and that actually brings me to my next question about how or what are the first steps that you go through, which you already answered um, when you train your clients. Now, do you train your male and female clients differently? And if so, how so? Yeah, the, the real reality is that in terms of training male and female, it's a small differentiation. I'll answer, though, what we do with people first. First thing I do is I get questions, age, weight, height level, current level of activity, what they can commit to. I want to know medical history. I want to know the last time they got labs, medications they take, injury history, etc. Then I want to do, a, if I have them in person, I want to do a functional movement screen, assess like thoracic mobility. I want to assess hip mobility, things like this. Uh, and then we get them moving. Um, and so it's really important to get all that information, getting labs, what's their, what's their, uh, uh, their uh, um, LDL, What's their alpha-lipoprotein B? Um, where is their testosterone, their free testosterone? Looking at these labs, it's really important to get all of the data in front of me. What's their DHEA? What is their vitamin D? Taking care of very simple things that are very easy to fix. Uh, triglycerides, et cetera. Um, when it comes to male and female, I have some very, very strong female clients that you would never look at and be like, I have a uh, female client, Ashley, uh, she squatted 195 pounds, 195, to parallel, meaning this, right? Like literally to where her hamstring is parallel with the ground. That's a real parallel squat. Torso is like this. Um, 195 pounds for six reps. She does uh, chin-ups, pull-ups, neutral grip pull-ups uh, for somewhere between eight and 10 reps, depending on which pull-up she's doing, body weight. She can do dips with her body weight for 12 reps. So all my clients, I center around strength, First and foremost, we, mobility, of course, but we work on the mobility. Even in the example with Ashley, she uh, because she has long femurs, so think about the squat. This is the torso. This is the femur, and then you have the tibia. Uh, as a result of her having long femurs, her body will lean forward as she squats. So what do you have to do? You have to increase thoracic strength, but that takes time because the mobility of getting down there. So we loaded her over time. We put her on a wedge initially and allowed her to get down to where she could get lower and lower. And then slowly over time, we've removed the wedge. And then sometimes we use the wedge where we have her go all the way down. So I had her do that um, 195-pound squat this week. But after two sets of that, I then had her do actually 135, where she went completely where her hamstring and her calf touched each other at the bottom and staying as upright as possible. And she leaned over slightly during it. But I just said, like, this will increase over time just like anything else. So very much an emphasis on mobility, then, then strength and finishing up with some form of conditioning. And it just happens because the circuits are so fast. But I think men and women, crucial that they both strength train. This notion of building muscle or becoming bulky as a woman, I'm so glad it's evaporated. Yeah, I know. It's like, I don't want to I don't, I don't want to go to the gym. I need to keep my cardio because I don't want to be bulky. I'm like, do you know how hard it is to actually bulk up and, and build muscle? You know, people are using anabolic steroids and all that, which we will get into. But we'll, we'll dive into the detail. But before we go there, I want a high-level view. Oh, I mean, even for myself, I think I have 19-inch arms. I have 19-inch I, – I have been lifting since I'm 14 years old. I mean, it's, it's 
it requires a tremendous amount of consistent effort. It's very, becoming too jacked is like saying you're going to drive uh, six hours and become a professional race car driver. Like going to visit your in-laws will not turn you into a professional race car driver any more than going to the gym four days a week uh, will make you a bodybuilder. Exactly. So just from a very high level here, you know, just a quick um, answer from you. What are, what is the secret to losing fat and building muscle? The first and foremost is understanding your calories. Well, uh, easiest way to do this is to get an RMR, RMR test, resting metabolic rate test. They put a mask on you. They see how much fat you oxidize. They look at the breakdown of carbs and fats that you burn, and they will tell you your magic number. What is your resting metabolic rate? If you cannot go get testing, you can look online and you can calculate your RMR. I actually think if you're going to do a calculation rather a, a, a calculation, an estimate, which is what you're calculating a line, if you're going to do an estimate rather than a calculation, Hey, no, sorry. I've got my guy at home with me. So if you're going to do a calculate, if you're going to do an estimation, which is what you calculate in line, look up your TDEE. That's a step further than your RMR. It's your total daily energy expenditure. That's how many calories you burn, depending on your level of activity. So having your calories in the right place, getting protein in, getting fiber in are my dietary keys to success for having losing fat, building muscle. Then weight training, key to building muscle. And third is making sure that your endocrine, your hormones is in the proper place. If you have nutrition, if you have training, and if you have endocrine, you will build muscle and you will lose fat. Yeah, so thank you very much for the answer. Um, and I'm definitely going through the process myself. And I think it's a sort of almost like a lifelong discovery journey, which is which is the, the interesting part of, of this sort of um, experience, right? Because we always try to figure out our, our nutrition, our weight programs, depending on our goals, depending on where we are in the stage of lives that we are in, and depending on how we, it fits into the current stage of our lives. And then um, now I'm actually um, trying to figure out my, my hormonal stage and uh, uh, hormonal levels as well. So I went to a precision, um, one of our guests uh, two weeks ago, um, Dr. Florence Comite, she runs a precision medicine center in New York, actually. Uh, so I went to their Palo Alto office, took a bunch of blood, and they're going to give me um, some test results around the genomics, transcriptomics, and metabolomics around uh, my my body and what I don't know about my body that is um, either hindering or helping with the goals that I'm trying to achieve in, in health and fitness. So... What are the most Amazing. common mistakes people make when trying to lose weight and gain muscle? I think the first and foremost mistake is thinking not people have an idea of either nutrient selection or uh, if it fits your macros. They don't see them simultaneously. I see people so caught up in, oh, you just eat, don't eat processed food and just don't uh, eat carbohydrates or drop fat. And then on the flip side, people are like, it's all numbers, it's all calories, it's all, you need a combination of both. Um, I, I don't think that most people um, who are working professionals are overweight because they're eating Doritos. That's, that's not what's going on. In reality, I think most people are overweight. The word processed, it's a very broad definition. It means very little without context. Most working professionals are just eating out too often. And that's why they're overweight. Because restaurant food is just so much more caloric 
than food that you would cook at home. A sirloin steak cooked at home, five ounces, 250 calories. If you look at that same steak on a restaurant like Houston's menu, which has to have the calories on it, it's 750 calories. Uh, and the reason for that is butter. Because it's dipped in butter, it's cooked with butter, butter's topped over top of it. And so when people are going out, they simply don't realize how much food they're going out and having. So most people don't bother to ever find out what their RMR is or bother to go online and estimate their TDEE. And in the flip side, the few people who do, they don't think about 80% of your food needs to be single ingredient foods. It needs to be foods that are like steak, chicken, salmon, eggs, berries, broccoli, asparagus, oranges, apples, the foods we think of, rice, potatoes, oatmeal, avocado. People get so stringent. It's almost like religion these days with food rather than understanding like you are going to have a moment where you have a drink of alcohol. We all know that's a class one carcinogen. It's on par with smoking cigarettes. Terrible for your health, but you are going to do that. And there's a moment that you're going to have dessert or there's a moment that you're going to have something out of a bag or you might be new to your fitness journey and struggling to get enough protein in. It's okay to use a scoop of protein powder during the day. So I think that's the number one mistake that people get very religious about it and they don't understand that it's both simultaneously having the correct calories in your diet and the correct nutrient selection and having some room to understand like there are moments you're going to go out to dinner or there are moments that you're going to have a candy bar or whatever, ice cream, whatever in particular you like to enjoy and have. Yeah, I think, you know, when it comes down to it, even a lot of studies, they showed the effectiveness of a diet often, more often than not falls down to adherence and sustainability. It's not so much the nature of the diet itself. It's more Great. so on the sustainability on, you know, the diet. If you look at a lot of diets, 80% of people who lose weight, regain it. Why is that? Because a lot of the majority of people who lose weight did something out of the ordinary to lose it in the first place. They said, oh, I'm not going to have carbs. Well, you, good luck. I'm not saying you can't, but many people can't follow that for the rest of their life. Or they order meal prep and then they get off meal prep and they regain the weight or they go carnivore or they go uh, vegan. And it's something that they can't maintain long term. I'm not really particularly attacking any of those things. What I am telling you is you need to pick something that's sustainable and that you continue to do long-term in your life. The way I eat, I can eat this way indefinitely. I have a very set structure in my diet and there's room for things I enjoy every single day. What I don't understand though is that people online, they can't seem to grasp the idea that a diet that worked for, for them may not be ideal for another person. Just because yeah. veganism works for you and you are a big advocate about it and then you go out and blast the carnivore people, even though yeah. there are some carnivore folks who cured whatever autoimmune diseases that they have faced. And then they are also blasting this other group. I don't understand why is it so hard for people to understand that each individual have different metabolism, different immune system and different environment that would make them sustain, uh, would make them susceptible to a certain diet for certain therapeutic areas and not the others. It's as simple I, as that. I think what it is, is people love to virtue signal with fitness. They love to do it. And so it's just a matter of almost proverbially like showing up and saying, mine's better than yours or mine's bigger than yours. And they do this with everything. I believe this is even true with good things like ice baths. Part of the reason I believe that that trend blew up 
is because people can put that on social media and be like, look, I got into an ice agreement. There's nothing wrong with ice baths. Of course, I'm, especially if you're a runner, phenomenal. But people love to showcase their fitness. That's why people always will post a story of like, I took this supplement this morning. Look, guys, I'm in such good shape. So I think it's almost a matter of like, here's my tribe. Here's what I belong in. Let me let you know, everybody, this is what I'm doing. And if you're not doing this, you're wrong. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So we talked about exercise for a bit. We talked about nutrition for a bit. Let's talk about recovery, right? Recovery is as important. How do you optimize sleep and recovery for your clients? For sure. So sleep is so difficult for people. And the really, even myself, I am not a great sleeper. You would not think that if you looked at my lifestyle because I consistently get seven to eight hours of sleep, but it's because I've created a regiment for sleep and I tell people to do the exact same thing. For clientele, if they're really struggling, the first sign is, are you snoring? And if you are snoring, is they always a dead giveaway, go get a sleep test right away. Snoring is not always apnea, but it's almost always sleep apnea and sleep apnea is a silent killer. So if you are snoring, if you're snoring, you have a couple questions you can ask your partner. Uh, do I snore louder than conversation? Do I snore loud enough that you can hear me through the door? If the answer is yes to those things, go get a sleep study like it was tomorrow. Go do it immediately because you may have moderate to severe sleep apnea, which is going to take years off your life. So that would be my first step if it was severe. But then my second step is really create a regimen for yourself. I go to bed at 9 to 10 o'clock Monday through Sunday. Every night of the week, I'm in bed 9 or 10 o'clock. Now, I'm not telling you that there's never a special occasion. I'm at a wedding or something like that. But that is really an extreme rarity. I'm talking about like 320, 330 days of the year. I'm in bed at 9 or 10 o'clock. I start my day typically at 5 o'clock. And even on the weekend where I might be out till 10 o'clock, I'm up by 6 o'clock. And I really can't sleep past that. I have a set window where I sleep, usually 9 to 5. I have my time. I go to bed at 9. I go to bed at 10. Um, and then what be round when I go to bed. I make sure that I take a hot shower, which sounds funny. It raises my core body temperature, right? But as I'm coming out of the hot shower, what happens? My core body temperature, which helps me fall asleep. And then in my bedroom, I have blackout shades. I keep the temperature in my bedroom about 63, 64 degrees, whatever my wife will let me get away with. I'll go as low as possible. Um, I have a cooling bed. I literally have a bed that we bought um, that actually is a cooling mattress. It's so, it's not. Believable. I love it. I, I, I know. I agree. Like cooling, cooling mattresses. <laughs> I'm the same. I'm like, my body is, it's just warm naturally. Um, I always prefer cooler temperature. I think generally men as well, they, they, we do prefer colder temperature. Yeah. And I think also too, it comes down to size, like the larger person, you're going to be generating more heat. Right? Absolutely. So, so I, I, for me, I, Make sure that the shades are dark and there's nothing. I don't, I don't watch TV an hour before bed. If I have to watch something, I have my shades on. I keep away from the screen and I do not look at, I don't look at my phone. My phone, if I had, a, if I, if you have a problem with looking at your phone in the middle of the night, take your phone, put it in the other room, use something like um, Siri or one of these devices that you can set the alarm to so it will turn on. Alexa, you can tell Alexa to set your alarm. Get the phone out of the bedroom. Yeah. Have a bedroom. I refuse to. I get to interview all these doctors, scientists, and cool people in this health and fitness industry 
all made possible because of this podcast that is funded by the company I work for, which is Health via Modern Nutrition or HVMN. And it is not that they pay me to do this, but I genuinely love and believe in the product Ketone IQ. I use it every day before my podcast, before my workout, or even after my workout for recovery. There hasn't been a single supplement that can give me such a drastic change in subjective feel within minutes as much as Ketone IQ has. For those of you who do not know me, I'm from Malaysia, I got my PhD from the UK, and my passion is in science and chronic diseases, and I believe it is all about transparency, scientific integrity, and about sharing with everyone so that everyone can benefit from it. And if you like this content and our work, please do support us by liking, leaving a review, or sharing with your friends and families, or even buying a shot of Ketone IQ at any Sprouts nationwide in the US, and the first shot is on us. Just scan the QR code and you'll get your money back for your first shot. You can also use the code HVMNPOD20, that is H-V-M-N-P-O-D 20, and get 20% off your first purchase at the HVMN website. Yeah, I think a lot of people, they, you know, it, when it comes down, it, it goes back to what we were talking about, sustainability. You can look at the sleep regime as a discipline. You can look at a, uh, as a sacrifice. Some people do, right? It's like the sacrifice I'm willing to make in order to improve my sleep. And you can look at it as a reward. Because I've worked so hard, I'm going to make sure that my sleep is good so that I can reward myself for the hard work that I've done during the day. So whatever way to look at it is like up to people, but as long as it's sustainable. Well, I love what you just said and here's why. I always say this, you may not have the body or the health that you're willing to sacrifice for. And what I mean by that is that in order to do certain things, like to get to to have abs, for example, you have to be in a caloric deficit. You have to make decisions about it. You have to say no to a lot of decisions. And some of them may be social, some of them may be dietary, and you have to decide, are you willing to do that or not? And some people, they may not. They might just be like, hey, you know, X amount of time with my family and my friends is more important to me than having abdominals, as an example. Or you might say like, oh, you know, like I know sleep's good for me, but I enjoy X, Y, Z, and I just don't like sleep. Look, these health decisions you have to make for yourself. How you look, how you feel, your health markers, they require sacrifice to achieve those things. And I always tell people when they hire me, I, I'm not promising you that you'll get in the shape you've always wanted to be, but I promise you'll know how and you'll know if you're willing to do it or not. And that's all, that's all you can ask for, right? Because ultimately we humans, we have the freedom of choice and it's your life. You live the way you want. And all the professional trainers or nutritionists or dietitians or health coaches, what they can do is provide you with the information, education that, that you need in order to make that informed decision. Yes. Whether or not you are going to take that step, it's still the step. The step is to be taken is yours, fully yours. Yeah. So at the end of the day, whatever results that come out of it, it's you know your own journey that you have to walk through. And there are certainly half, like there are certainly things like I always tell people, like when you look for a trainer, you do want them to be in shape because there's an intellectual understanding of being in shape. And then there's also an application understanding of being in shape. And so somebody might be able to explain to you gluconeogenesis, but if they're 30 pounds overweight, they probably don't know how to apply traveling or time management principles around it. Like a simple way I do meal prep for myself. I have a meal prep service. I'm thankfully have, you know, a uh, 
businesses that will send me food because of where I'm at in my career. But even besides that, before I did that, what I used to do is when I would cook dinner, I would cook three portions of dinner. And then I would have two of my meals covered for the next day, every single day. So what I did when I was single. And now even with the meal prep service, we still always cook additional sources of dinner. So like, for example, if we're making salmon, instead of making six ounces, make 24 ounces of salmon. Now you have a meal covered for the next day, both for me and my wife. And then I use meal prep to supplement that so that I have my meals. I think of meal prep as really like never cooking one meal, but always cooking multiples of it. I always have cooked vegetables in my refrigerator because look, when you go in the refrigerator and you're looking at like cold celery or cold broccoli, it's really not appetizing. But if you slice it up, you put the right seasoning in it, it's much more appetizing and it's easier to go and actually grab out of the refrigerator. So I think really for everybody, there's, there's a lot of hacks that you can do, but at the end of the day, you still have to want to do it. And it's definitely more fun to just eat whatever you want, but there are ramifications for that as well. Yeah. So is there a, a go-to um, packaged meal service that you, you go like, that you like? So there are some really interesting ones out there. So I use something called Green Life that's here in Westchester. It's local, good friends with the owner. I know what's going into the food. But I've done Trifecta. They sent me food. I like Trifecta, particularly the meats-only portion. Um, There's some really interesting meat-only meal prep services that are coming out. That's probably what I would suggest to people to use because I find that the meat transport better than the actual meals themselves. So we actually have factor right here right now. I'm going to be doing a post about it. They were kind enough to send me the package for free. It's good. I enjoy it. Um, I definitely prefer though when I buy the meats only and they're like seasoned and then they're pre-cooked and then you can just heat them up. Then I would do my own carbohydrate for them or my own vegetable for them. Yeah, because carbohydrate and vegetables are easier to cook and yeah. faster and the meat is the prep time and, and yeah. getting the right quality and takes longer as well. So Yeah, and by the way, even beside the point as well, rice, rice really doesn't stay good in a packaged form for more than like a day or so. So Yeah, there you go. Um, okay, my next, next question is going to be a bit interesting. So why is it that some guys who are active, they look fit, but they have, they still have low testosterone. Is that genetics or is there something else more than that? Okay, great. So there's a couple of factors to that, right? First of all, just because you see someone who's muscular does not mean that they have high testosterone or low testosterone. There are so many other factors and the first and foremost being lifestyle. Even besides that, there are genetics. And when people think of genetics, they simply think genetics or testosterone. My RMR, my resting metabolic rate, if you looked at me and you calculated, if you estimated me, you went online and punched the numbers, should be 3,600. My real number is 4,350. That's my RMR. That's how many calories I burn without any exercise. And when you ask the doctor why, they'll tell you, um, you're muscular and genetics. And what does genetics really mean? It means a host of things that we don't understand. So understand there's many genetic factors that go into if somebody's muscular or not. But first and foremost, there's many lifestyle factors. If you have a guy who has lower testosterone, even maybe 500 compared to a guy who has 1,000, the guy who's 500 who's been lifting for 15 years is going to be more jacked than the guy who has 1,000 who's sitting on his couch all day. So that's first and foremost determined. Those doesn't have anything to do with each other directly. Now, having said that, the guy who has 1,000 nanograms over a deciliter, he has way more potential than the guy that has 500. One of the reasons someone could have low testosterone is simply because they used steroids in the past. 
They may have used, and they might even not even intentionally laugh and use steroids. There was a product in the 90s called Superdrawl, which was an OTC. You could get it at a supplement company's originally. You could go into a supplement store and buy it. And then the FDA found it, and they go, ah, this is a steroid and banned it. And this happens all the time. Um, Blackstone Lab, the gentleman who owned that, they, Aaron Singer and another gentleman went to prison because they were putting SARMs in uh, supplements. And so it's possible that you took something in the past that now has caused you to become hypogonadal. There's also lifestyle factors, and lifestyle factors could include being overweight. That's going to be problematic, not weight training. Uh, I myself am on TRT. I take 200 milligrams, and it's funny. When I talk about it openly on social media, some people will be like, you should have tried powerlifting first. I, I, I think I've, I've worked out. I think I've tried that. Thank you. I, if you ask me what the number one reason why I had to get on TRT is probably sleep. Um, I do sleep, but even last night I went to bed. I said, I, you wouldn't think that I'm not a good sleeper, but I've done everything to become as good of a sleeper as I can. I went to bed last night at 8.30, I believe, 9 o'clock, right about 9 o'clock. Um, and I woke up at 11 to use the restroom. My dogs woke me up because they were barking before you can tell. They're, they're very, they, they take their job very seriously. I woke up at 11, used the restroom, went back to bed, and then I woke up at 3.30 and I kind of like fell in and out of sleep till five o'clock. And so if you really think about that, I probably got, even with effort, uh, six and a half hours of sleep last night. And you really want to strive for eight. And some people just are not going to get the sleep they need. And that is a major factor on your testosterone levels. So. That, yeah, interesting. Um, so what, so let's say your client come, come to you, sort of say they have low testosterone. Do you ask them to go to a doctor, go TRT, like, and, and I think there's a lot of misconception between TRT, which is testosterone uh, replacement therapy versus anabolic steroid, which is straight up just injecting testosterone into you. Can you, can you break that down a little bit and help people understand yeah. what's the difference between those two? And then you can move on to what would you tell someone with low testosterone do? Yeah. Can I go the other way around? Because I think, sure, sure. Someone comes to me, they've got their labs done, their testosterone is low. Depends. There's total and there's free. If their total's good, but their free's low, I'm going to look at their DHEA, and I'm not going to need a doctor to get involved in that because a DHEA in the United States of America, at least, is an OTP. You can get it right. Puritan Pride makes a great brand. I have no affiliation with them, but I just know personally it works. So they can take a DHEA supplement, and it may raise their free testosterone, and then we can check again in three months. Um, if someone's overweight and they have low testosterone, I'm not even going to have them touch it. I'm going to ask them to lose the weight first and start adapting a healthier lifestyle and then look at it. And then we might retest after they're no longer clinically overweight or clinically obese and see if their levels have risen. And often they will have risen as a result of it. Um, if they, what's the brand of DHEA again that you mentioned? Puritan Pride, P-U-R-I-T-A-N. Yeah, and I have no affiliation. By the way, it's like $4 lap. <laughs> By the way, my concierge service, which is very nice concierge service uh, outside of New York City, when I when they I, my TH level, EA levels were low, and I said, hey, what do you want me to do for this? And they sent me this bottle that I can get off Amazon for $3. They didn't even charge me for it because it's it uh, so shocking. But it, it's effective. Yeah, I was going to ask in terms of effectiveness, like, uh, have, like, I, I, I'm not very um, familiar with uh, the studies around this. Yeah. Does DHEA taken orally increase um, testosterone significantly? Okay, so uh, it does not. What I am telling you is you have your total testosterone. 
does mm. not affect that. But you also okay. bioavailable, which is your free testosterone. And if your DHEA is elevated, you will be you will have more of your total available, increasing your free testosterone. I am not claiming that Puritan Pride increases testosterone. What I am saying is if you increase your DHA, which Puritan Pride does, but if you increase your DHA, you will have more bioavailable testosterone. Does that make sense? That, yeah, that makes sense. Total so DHA is, is almost competing with the free testosterone for the binding for the sex um, binding side. As the DHA raises, you will have, be, have more bioavailability of the testosterone that you already have. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And then I'll let you carry on. And then from there, uh, we would try to get retest them after they've lost the weight. If they still are not, then we have a really candid conversation. Like, where's your number at? And, you know, most people, hypogonadal, which is clinically low, is about 270 something. And it ranges in the test, but it's like 276 or below. Um, but you really don't want to live life at 400. Um, 500 is kind of like mediocre for most people. They want to be around 700 somewhere in there, 900. I've seen people be okay with 1100, whatever. Uh, I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to pretend to be here, but I will tell you that really having a number somewhere around seven to 900, probably most, most people would consider between 300 and a thousand doctors to be normal levels of testosterone for a man. So somewhere in there, that number, you'd probably want to be on the more optimal side of the number. Obviously. And so at that point, we then have a conversation. Look, if you take TRT, if you inject yourself weekly with testosterone, you will be doing that for the rest of your life. Or do you want to take a tablet called Clomid that is not the original intention of the tablet, but this happens all the time. Like, for example, the original intention of GLP-1 agonist was not to lose weight, but they found that it causes minoxidil. Minoxidil was in a blood pressure medication that people now use for hair loss. So this happens all the time that we find a second use for it. And so the secondary use of clomiphene, which was originally a fertility-related uh, drug, clomiphene, see that it raises people's testosterone. I had a client who had uh, around 300. He took the pill for three months, got off it. He no longer takes even the pill, and his number is now at 700, which is about I think it's actually 650 now. So he went from 300 to 650, more than doubled his testosterone by taking this pill. So the first question is, are you really about this life? Are you serious about weight training? Are you committed to the rest? Do you already have kids? Are you good in that? Then you should consider TRT. If the answer is no to any of those things, I don't have kids. I'm not about this life. Um, I don't want to take this medication for the rest of my life. When I say about this life, I mean, I'm joking, but I mean, do you seriously, seriously weight train? Because, you know, if you just kind of casually go to the gym, you probably don't need 1000 nanograms over deciliter of testosterone uh, weekly. So then we take the pill and we go about it that route. Now, the difference, and the pill is prescription. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything I'm telling you, I do not do. I would never, if someone came to me and asked me, which we'll talk about next steroids, I would be like, I've had people in my conversations ask me about like Anavar, and I'm just, I'm like, I'm sorry, we don't do this here. Um, and I just don't get in involved with anything that I don't also tell people to do anything. I tell them to go have a conversation with their doctor, but certainly I direct it and give them some opinions about it and then let the doctor and them make a decision. You know, if someone had like a recessive gene for hemochromatosis and they needed to get on TRT, then maybe it's a different conversation, you know? So I allow the doctor to make the informed decision necessary from there, but I guide the conversation and where they need to go. Fair enough. All right. So now let's talk about the difference between anabolic steroids, TRT, 
Um, what do people understand so far? What's, what's the misunderstanding around it? There's two major, well, the first biggest two differences, three, three major differences, first and foremost. So there's a segment of drugs known as PEDs, just like there's a segment of drugs like amphetamines, right? And under amphetamines, there's multiple things. That, that includes cocaine all the way to Adderall. Uh, you know, you wouldn't, if your child was having a hard time paying attention in school, your doctor's not going to give them cocaine. They would give them, they would give them Adderall. So just because of these, a classification of drugs do not mean that they are on par with each other. The same thing is true with like steroids, which is one form of PEDs, performance enhancing drugs. Steroids is a classification of drugs, anabolic androgenic steroids. Now within that, you can, again, like the cocaine Adderall analogy, there is testosterone, which fine meant for human beings you want to have that natural in your body and then there's all the way over to the other corner which is like trembolone and trembolone is a steroid that is originally designed for cattle uh human beings were never intended to take this drug and will absolutely ruin your health um and there's other drugs within that like nanodrolin which is also known as deca there's drugs like anavar winstrol and these are all illegal drugs now these drugs, in the classification, someone who's taking steroids means they're taking that whole class or are open to taking that whole classification of drugs. So it'd be like somebody who's like, oh, I take, and again, just bear with me with the analogy, again, of like the classification of amphetamines. If there's somebody who's like, well, on the weekends I do cocaine, but when I'm at my office job, I take Adderall. Um, and then, you know, before I go to the gym, um, I take some caffeine um, in my pre-workout. <laughs> That person is doing all forms of amphetamines, right? Whereas in the other example, the person is only doing one form of a steroid and it happens to be testosterone, which is naturally in your body. Anyhow, you just want to. And then the second thing within that category is the person who's doing steroids, they are using multiple drugs across multiple receptor cells, but they also have what's known as supra, S-U-P-R-A, not super, supra physiological levels, which means that we talked about that 300 to 1,000 being the normal range. They might have, as an example, a gentleman named Dallas Carver, a professional bodybuilder who died at the age of 26, tragically, had 52,000 nanograms over deciliter. He died in his autopsy having 52 times level of normal testosterone. That is a stark contrast between the two. So not only do they take multiple drugs across multiple receptor cells, they also have super physiological levels of these hormones. So those are stark contrasts. And the third thing that I would say as well is when you are buying steroids, they are not made in a pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical grade quality controlled situation. They are probably made in some place like Moldova like a part of the former USSR, that's actually one of the major manufacturings of Moldova. Uh, they happen to be, uh, their major forms of, um, is sex trade and steroid production. And Moldova, they are coming over from countries like this or other countries, China, et cetera, that are then made, and they're made probably under underground labs. So they're made illegally in some countries, depends on the country, and then shipped over here to the United States. They go through customs, but... Essentially, these things could be made in any degree of someone's bathtub to someone's private laboratory, as opposed to being made, as example, at Pfizer, right? Or, or the powder is sent from Pfizer to a compounding pharmacy, as an example of mine. Mine is made in a compounding pharmacy, uh, Westchester Compounding Pharmacy makes it, I pick it up, good to go. So that's steroid versus 
you know, TRT. So in terms of TRT, did you mention like what sort of numbers are we looking at? Is that still within, you know, 300 to yeah. 1,000 versus yeah. the 52,000? Yes, and that is a, a distinction because some people will say, oh, I'm on TRT and they're self-administering themselves and they have to, that, that's not TRT. TRT is intended for you at natural, what your body should naturally be producing, that number somewhere between three and 1,000. I've heard people say, oh yeah, I'm on 300 milligrams of uh, testosterone, sipinate. You have super physiological levels of the hormone at that point. Most people's dosage is gonna be somewhere between 150 and 250 milligrams um, of injectable per week, usually broken up about every four days apart. Um, because the half-life of the drug, you don't want it to dip, you want it to be continuous. But when you look at those those differences, people respond differently. So some people, person might respond to 150 milligrams injected differently than someone who takes 250 milligrams injected. People are hyper-responders. If you under, like, if, I don't know if anyone's followed the liver king. Um, the liver king was taking $12,000 worth of steroids a month. Uh, and the response to the person who was advising them for drug use said, you're a hyper-non-responder, right? And then someone like me, and I, and I say this sincerely, like I've always been very muscular. If you go back and you go, not when I was 14, but if you go back and look at me in college, if you go back and look at me, I mean, when I was in high school, I was bigger than most, most, I, my stepdad raised me and I was bigger than my stepdad by the time I was in high school. So there are going to be people who respond very well to weight training. There are going to be people who respond very well to hormones. There are going to be people who respond very well to eating. One thing I would say for everybody though if you're lifting and you're not responding to it, look to get more mechanical tension in your lips. And, and explain mechanical tension. How do you achieve Sure. That? So people often think about moving the objects from point A to point B by any means necessary. But if you really think about it, this is a lever. So let's say I'm holding a dumbbell in my hand and it's out here. It's all the way up here. Here's my, here's my shoulder. Here's my arm. This, even if it's 10 pounds, is heavier than this. Right? It might go the same but the moment arm is different because i have less leverage on the object so this is easier than that this is very easy to hold that long term and so you want to think about how the muscles intend to function so for example the chest comes up and across the body the muscle fibers run this way across it must come up and across the body and then you want to think about that insertion point which is my elbow from my armpit which is the insertion points of the pack and making sure that they're sufficiently far away. Whereas if I hold the dumbbell like this and I press, it's different than that from in terms of tension because again, moment arm. And then making sure that the entire time I actually feel the muscle. What we're knowing more and more about lifting is that the stretch portion is imperative to growing muscle. So if I was to press, people always get preoccupied with pushing it away from you. Believe it or not, that may be the least important part of the bench press. The most important part may be the actual stretch here at the bottom is my pec fiber stretch. The more we know the stretching of the hamstring, the stretching of the pec is actually what causes hypertrophy, which means to build muscle. And then also too, an eccentric load. So I want to eccentrically, I want to feel it on a negative of the exercise. So if I press something away from me, I also want to feel it as the dumbbell comes back down or the barbell comes back down. Many people just lift it and they let it drop back down. They lift it, they let it drop. No, you need and that's also when injury. Would yes, for sure. Bouncing off the chest. We know that you want to control eccentric and then come back up. And that's mechanical tension because now I feel not only if you really think about a rep and like almost like a circle. And if you think about it, like if you bounce, you've got rid of two inches of the lift. So now the circle's smaller. 
And if you don't go all the way up, now the circle's even smaller. And now if you don't feel the tension on the way down, the circle's even smaller. So now you have 50% of a efficient rep and only 50% of it is mechanical tension, whereas opposed to the other person doing 100% mechanical tension through the entire rep. You want each rep to be as uniform and as efficient as possible because building, I don't know why I made a heart like that, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but building muscle is very, very, very difficult now. I don't think that is part of the, the, the software that, that creates that. I've never seen that before a recording podcast. You're the first one, Jacob. Um, for those of you who are just listening, um, Jacob just made a hand gesture and that was a heart um, emote that, that came out of it. So I thought that was really funny. Um, well, important anyway. things here, so, you know. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so while we're on the topic of steroids and whatnot, I would just want to cover real quick would you recommend any use of peptides, which is very different from steroids and, yeah. and TRT? Would you recommend any, any use of peptides? And if, if yes, what sure. kind of peptides? So uh, I, you want to, here's the thing about peptides. Peptides are about to get under, uh, become uh, under controlled status um, for good reason, because they've just been abused by concierge service and they've just been thrown out to people. Um, so Merlin is actually FDA approved, S-E-R-M-O-R-L-E-I-N, so Merlin. Um, and the reality of that drug is it does not increase um, IGF-1 levels. I have not seen it. So they claim that it does. I have not seen it on any client. Uh, when clients had low IGF-1 levels, IGF-1 is uh, growth hormone for lack of a better term. It's an insulin-like growth factor. Um, and so you want to have uh, growth hormone because it helps you sleep better. It helps you recover better. And so this insulin-like growth factor, they were prescribing Sermerlin for people who were low in it, and I have not seen it increase. So I would stay away from any of the IGF-1 agonists because I do not think they're effective for it. Um, and there are precursors to Sermerlin. Before Sermerlin, there was uh, Imperellin. Uh, before that, there was GHRP-6. And before that, there was GHRP-2. And they moved away from these drugs because they said GHRP-2 caused hunger pains. Uh, GHRP-6 still caused hunger pains. Impermerlin, um, they just thought that uh, Sumerlin was more efficient. Um, but I have seen no success with them. So a lot of peptides are bunk, um, at least in terms of the uh, IGF-1 agonists. And then, um, but what I have seen to be very effective is BPC-157. Uh, I have seen that help for people who have had tendonitis. Uh, in elbows, et cetera. So I, I would tell a client if they were having like elbow tendonitis or dealing something with that, I would tell the client first and foremost, uh, work on your technique, uh, what you're doing, whether it's playing tennis all the way to lifting weights. Like if you're breaking at your wrist as you're playing tennis, that's gonna put a lot of strain on the extensor. Um, if you're doing certain things incorrectly with triceps, you might start to get tricep tendonitis. Um, if you're pulling incorrectly, you should start to bother the bicep brachius. So I would tell them work on technique, but simultaneously to that, BPC-157 is very effective with calming down um, tendons. And that is via injection on the site of injury or subcutaneous, subcutaneous. or oral? There, there are oral, there are oral, um, but oral is not as effective as subcutaneous injection. Uh, so I don't even know if, uh, to be 100% honest with you, I don't even know if 
oral is even uh, effective. I know that in the past they've talked about growth hormone form in oral and it's never been effective. Um, when you yeah, I think the only reason the only reason some I read a while ago is that people think oral may be effective for BPC just because um, BPC one five seven the peptide itself is being synthesized in the gut, um, and that's why um, increasing increasing the, the concentration through oral um, path uh, could. What I find so interesting about things like um, even insulin or um, uh, things like growth hormone or stuff like that, they are basically one of the first examples, like insulin is the first example of genetically modified organism. Uh, they take uh, E. coli and that is how they literally developed Humalog. So these, you know, these peptides, there's just sequences of amino acids um, up until this point, and again, BPC seven might be the that one one five seven might be the exception. But up until this point, those amino sequences required being refrigerated and uh, injected subcutaneously, just like insulin. Same thing requires that regimen. Right. Um, okay. Um, since we've got two more questions, if you've got time. Um, yeah. So the first, um, you know, I'm going to go back. So we talked about working out, we talked about recovery, we talked about um, steroids used, peptides. Um, I want to pull in a little bit more around mm -hmm. um, nutrition. So plant-based proteins versus meat-based proteins. What are your so, thoughts on that? When you talk about bioavailability of protein, if you went back 10 years ago, everybody would have told you that bioavailable protein is so important, meaning... Uh, uh, you want to look at the amino acid profile. Uh, pea protein is inferior to animal-based because it has a complete amino acid. Uh, that seems to all be hogwash now. There are certain forms of protein that do not cause protein synthesis, like collagen does not cause protein synthesis, but pea protein and whey protein when compared, the, the bulk of the literature is suggesting that they both achieve muscle protein synthesis. So it doesn't seem that the bioavailability matters so much. Um, there are complications when you look at like pea protein powder versus whey protein powder in the sense that pea protein powder is gonna have a lot of metallics. Um, I personally would tell you when you're looking at the two between that two, it's fine to have vegetarian protein, um, but it's also fine to have animal protein, especially when it's on the leaner side. Um, we once upon a time thought cholesterol as a whole was a health marker. Um, people commonly say, I hear this all the time from carnivores, 2015, they stopped saying that cholesterol, that's not true. What they said now that was LDL was an independent um, uh, health marker from cholesterol. So they were not as concerned about total cholesterol. They're now more concerned and they're not concerned at all about HDL from what it seems, but they are still concerned about LDL and you still want to manage your LDL. That may change someday. It might even only be oxidated LDL at some point. But for right now, like we're at, we only know what we know and we're continuing to learn more. So I would tell you for opting for animal protein, you want to, and also even just for caloric purposes, stick to primarily lean animal protein and then incorporate some with saturated fat because you need that for hormone balance, especially if you're not on TRT or something like that. You want to have a proper amount of saturated fat, but the predominant amount of fat you want to have is monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fat. Uh, but I, both animal protein and vegetarian protein are sufficient to cause muscle protein synthesis. But in my personal recommendation, I would tell people there's a lot of complications when you're vegetarian or vegan. There are other nutrients that you need to supplement or find other ways. And I, I would tell you the same thing with carnivore. If you ask me my overall stance 
um, on carnivore versus vegan, I think they're both great because they remove processed food. I also think that they're limiting and they have some dietary deficiencies when you look at it. And you and carnivore even will admit that whether they don't want to admit it or not, because carnivore now is doing raw dairy and they've added things in that were not originally originally carnivore was just uh, meat. And then they said, oh, no, but you can have fruit now. And then they became, oh, no, but now you can have raw dairy. And I'm not – it's a new thing. I, I'm not really ripping on it. Um, it's more of they're expanding because they're understanding there's nutrient. And the same thing happened when uh, vegan first came out or vegetarian first came out. I know these are different. But like even like vegan – when vegan first came out, people were – oh, let's start with vegetarian. Vegetarian was a precursor to vegan. That was both. But even vegetarian, when it first came out, people were like, oh, it's perfectly fine. And then we said, no, but there's some clear nutrient deficiencies here. And they expanded what was necessary to be a vegetarian properly. The same thing's happening with carnivore. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair comment. And I always tell people, you know, whatever works for you and whatever works for your body. And if you can get, I think the the, the issue is when people are not getting enough proteins um, in general. Um, so if you can get enough protein with whatever source you get, I think that's total protein, the best part. Number one, your total amount of protein consumption approximately 0.8 exactly. grams per pound. I know we all tell people one gram per pound. They're telling you that because they want to make it simple for you. You're probably not digesting more than 0.8 point per pound. And then number two is breaking it up about every three to four hours because your body doesn't have a mechanism for storing amino acids. So spacing your protein out of the day is necessary. Your body has a mechanism for storing carbohydrates, uh, glucose, sucrose, fructose, whatever breaks down into glycogen and then is stored in muscle cell or in fat, or probably muscle cell or liver. Um, and then uh, fats, obviously, unfortunately, we all know that your body knows how to store fat, um, but protein cannot be stored. And that's why it's necessary to break up protein. So if one is total and basing on your protein consumption throughout the day. And you said 0 0.8, uh, 0 0.8 grams per, point eight, uh, per pound of body weight? Point eight. So if you weigh 100 pounds, you'd have 80 point. grams of protein a day. If you weigh 200 pounds, you'd have 160. By the way, that's a floor. That's like a minimum, if you're working out and you're training and doing this stuff, that's a minimum amount of protein to have. Uh, you can have more. All that will likely happen is the protein will go through. Remember I talked about gluconeogenesis before? The protein will convert actually to glucose. So it will go through a chain, uh, to something called gluconeogenesis, and it's just like eating. You could have that beautiful filet in front of you. It's just an expensive form of rice, essentially. You're making the protein into a carbohydrate. Right, right, right. Uh, speaking of carb, actually, that will be my last question. Um, I am recently just getting to know and, and learn yeah. about carb cycling. Do you ever do that with your clients? So I'll, I'll use myself as a, a, an example here because I'm trying to experiment with it as well. So I used to be very carb intolerant because I was doing intermittent fasting for too long, low carb for too long. So whenever I up my carb intake, I'll gain significant weight. And I know most of that yeah. would, would be water, um, uh, water weight because of the glycogen replenishment. But I will also stay on that higher weight. So we tried carb cycling for a bit. Uh, I, I said, we, you know, my trainer and I, and we managed to increase from 100 grams to 210 grams of carb without gaining weight, which I'm like, that's great. My body has never done that before. And then the problem I have now is that when I lower it back to 100 and try to have that calorie deficit, I'm not seeing weight loss until a week later. I have to keep on that 100 grams for a week yeah. before I see any weight loss. Uh, same thing when I'm on a low carb, you know, for a week, let's say for two weeks, and then I try to increase it uh, to 200, 
and the next day I actually don't gain any weight. And then two days, three days later, then I start getting weight. I don't know what's going on there. It could be hormonal imbalance, whatever, but what are your thoughts around that? So my thoughts are honestly with my clientele, they're mostly people who are in the office or they're running around with kids. And so, you know, even if a plan is optimal, if you can't adhere to it and dieting, I even, what I do with clients is flexible dieting. I only look at protein uh, and fiber intake besides calories. I don't even have them space out the amount of fats they're eating, the amount of carbs, because it doesn't have a significant impact on body composition. I want it to be as simple and as able to be adhered to as possible. When you're looking at carb cycling, if you have somebody who needs carbohydrates, like a runner, if you have somebody who is an Olympic lifter, sprinter, then there's absolutely use in carb cycling. The other reality is too, though, you've hit the nail on the head, I think, when you said, I know it's mostly glycogen. Some people store more water in the muscle cell than others. This is dependent on certain people because when you store glycogen, you store water with it. There's people who can store three pounds of water with uh, uh, with glycogen, like you know, with a pound of glycogen, example. So it just depends on the individual how much water you're holding. You may be a person that holds more water with glycogen. Now, is that a bad thing? Not necessarily, because that'll also be an incredible thing for muscle performance. So if you were to just genetically happen to, as an example, um, Michael Phelps, right? He actually medically has a condition where his body builds up last lactic acid. He literally has that medical condition, and that is giving him obviously a uh, a superior advantage. If you were a cyclist, lap, and you stored more water with every gram of carbohydrate you ate, uh, you would have an advantage over your competitors. So, but as, as a scientist, as a researcher who's like, man, I had a little too much pasta last night, and now I've gained three pounds. That, that, that's not great. You're not happy about it. So people always think of things as plus and minuses when in the reality, it could be an advantage or advantageous for, for one person, but not for another. So if you have a lifestyle such as yourself, it's, it's something to probably experiment with because you are able to adhere to it. And it's advantageous that you want to hold as little water as possible when carving up. But if in another life lap, if you were a cyclist uh, and doing the Tour de France, you'd want those additional water in your muscle cell. Uh, Maybe make- a change of career soon. <laughs> so to, so if i want to lose more body fat and and maintain my muscle what would you recommend uh for me to do lower your calories put yourself into a slight caloric deficit about 500 calories a day caloric deficit make sure that you're getting 0.8 grams of protein per pound make sure that you're weight training three to four hours a week if you're out weight training about three hours uh, probably total body days. If you're weight training four days a week, you can do lower body, upper body split. Not everybody cares about their legs. I do. I train my legs very seriously. But if you don't, then you could do like a push, pull, leg, and total upper body split. So now you're training your upper body three times a week and your lower body once. But weight train seriously and those thing and get sleep. Those things will allow you to maintain muscle as you decrease body fat. Lifting weights uh, is very, very important for body composition because if you think about body fat, it's both a numerator and a denominator. I know I'm getting technical here, but the numerator is total amount of fat. The denominator is absolute weight. Well, you can increase your absolute weight without increasing body fat. That's by building muscle. So if you build muscle, you lower your body fat. If you lose fat, you lower your body fat. Uh, One thing you want to say, if you don't mind, cardiovascular, cardio, very, very important. Your VO2 max is 
leading correlation with lifespan. So getting your VO2 max, max tested, very important. Uh, doing low heart rate training, keeping your heart rate between somewhere between 105 and approximately 130. Uh, doing that exercise will help increase VO2 max or other ways to do it, like doing uh, very high like anaerobic threshold will do as well. But the thing about rest, the low heart rate training is it will also lower your resting heart rate while simultaneously increasing your VO2 max. Very, very important that you do the cardio. I know I've talked over and over again. I know you see me and I look like a meathead, but I do do 150 minutes of low heart rate training every single week. I have a VO2 max of 53, which is a superior range. I think that puts me in like the top 5 percentile of uh, VO2 max. Very, very important uh, that you take care of your heart and lungs. I am so glad you mentioned that because I think maybe like five, five, seven years ago when I you know got into like fitness and health and all that, only then I realized all these influencers, fitness influencers who are, you know, really jacked and ripped, they don't show their cardio um, workouts because they'll be there for like an hour on cardio, cardio zone two. There's nothing interesting to show. Um, but the fact that they actually do that um, shows how important cardiovascular uh, or, or aerobic exercise is even when you are planning to um, build muscle and then if you're planning to, it's the same opposite of what people say, oh, I don't want to go to the gym because I don't want to be too bulky. And then the other, and I said, I don't want to do cardio. I don't want to lose my gains. Please, please. Listen, I, I literally, what I do is I put a 30 pound vest on. I walk on a slight incline and my goal is to get my heart rate into zone two, but as low as possible because I want it to be as, as, as limiting in fatigue as possible, while at the same time having my heart rate in zone two. I want my heart rate around 110, 111, 115. So it's not systemically fatiguing on my central nervous system. It's not tiring on my legs, but it's helping my heart and it's keeping me alive and in great shape. So if you can cardio without even having to affect your gains at all. I mean, if you're walking on a slight incline with a weighted vest, you're not going to get tired from that. And you're still going to give your heart sufficient stimulus so that your heart and lung can benefit from that. There you go. Well, it has been a really great, um, enlightening conversation, Jacob. And for our audience who would like to find out more about you and learn all about, you know, your content, where can they find you? They can find me at jacobzemer.com, J-A-C-O-B, Z-E-M-E-R.com. You can find services there. But the number one thing I would recommend to people is go to my Instagram, Jacob Zemer. It's all one word, J-O-B-Z-E-M-E-R. Uh, and follow me on Instagram because then you get to know my tone of voice. And really, I put out a tremendous amount of free content that's all about how to go to the grocery store, simple, actionable things that you can do at the gym, simple, actionable things you can do while traveling, worth it. It's really not a lot of like me flexing. It's not a typical fitness account. It's not like, oh, here's my shirt off. I look incredible. And here's my Ferrari. It's a lot more of like, what are you doing? I can attest to that. I can attest to that. And and like I said, you know, I really enjoyed um, the video around RDL and, and stiff leg. And I think it's a lot of um, information about nutrition and also uh, workouts that everyone can learn from. So it has been a pleasure uh, meeting you, Jacob. Thank you. So I really, really Thank you so much for having me laugh. And even when I saw you at uh, HPLT, I just instantly, I heard you speak and you were just like a, a breath of fresh air. It's, it's so nice to meet somebody that actually is following research and at the same time able to follow their passion. Thank you so much. That means, that means a lot. So, all right. Thank you. And I'll see you soon. Hopefully. I'll see you soon. Nice to see you.